0: Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University. My guest today is Milton Friedman. Milton is a senior research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, the 1976 Nobel laureate in economics, and a hero to millions in the United States and around the world for his insights and actions on behalf of economics and liberty. Milton, I'd like our conversation to focus on the ideas contained in two of your books, A Monetary History of the United States, 1870 to 1960, a massive scholarly work, and Capitalism and Freedom, a slim monograph on the principles of a free society. Let's begin with The Monetary History of the United States. Written with Anna Schwartz, published in 1963, it was an extraordinarily detailed and careful study of the role of money in the economy, and among many important insights, it made the case that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. When that book was published, what was the reaction of the profession to its, um, to its scholarship?
1: The profession on the whole uh, appreciated its scholarship. As I remember, as best I can, there were three different reviews in, in three different professional journals, all of which were highly favorable, even though one of them at least was written by, a, or I think two out of the three were written by strong Keynesians. And what
0: was its impact in affecting uh, the way the profession, at least in the short run, looked at, at the role of money?
1: I find that a very hard question to answer. Uh, obviously, many things were going on. Uh, in the world was going on. Uh, Bretton Woods was on. Uh, The 60s was a period of pretty good prosperity. On the whole, during the 50s and the 60s, it looked as if the Keynesian interpretation was right. After all, during that period we had relatively prosperous countries, relatively stable prices, relatively low interest rates. Everything, it was a golden era as it were and everybody was was said to be operating on Keynesian lines. What really changed the public perception and also the professional perception was the experience of the 70's. During the 1970's you had had a combination that under Keynesian analysis could not exist. You had high high inflation and high unemployment at the same time named stagflation. And that combination was really ruled out by the simple kind of Keynesian analysis that was in vogue. But it was that experience which more than anything else led to a basic change in public and intellectual attitudes toward money. So the the scholars and the public
0: had to try to puzzle out why this seeming impossibility was definitely occurring.
1: Well, they didn't... Yes and no. Because of our book... Because of Bob Lucas's work, we had all, we had predicted that this would happen, and therefore there was an as it were it was it was like an experiment, and you wait and see what happens, and the predicted results happened.
0: There was something to hold on to intellectually to explain the a lens to look through to explain what was going on.
1: Sure, because uh, this lens had been provided in advance, and we had said what its consequences would be. And we had predicted that you could have both high unemployment and high inflation at the same time.
0: Well, I was an undergraduate and a graduate in the 70s. And my textbooks at the undergraduate level, not the graduate level, because I attended a small university in the Midwest. I think you used to have an affiliation with uh, the University of Chicago. But as an undergraduate, my, my textbooks talked about all the different theories of inflation, cost push, cost pull. Uh, the role of unions, uh, the role of certain industrial concentration, and of course the possibility that, that Milton Friedman, this maverick thinker, was right that money had something to do with it. It's my impression that's not true anymore, uh, that, that the, the intellectual environment understands today that inflation is caused by a rapid growth in the money supply.
1: I think it does. I think that's clear. And the last 30 years last 20 years, I should say, has done a great deal to rub that in because every central bank has come to accept the view that it's responsible for inflation.
0: And Let's talk about those central banks. Um, what role do you think the monetary history had and the related work around it, of course, in influencing central bankers and uh, in, in focusing on the money supply and, the role, and its role in affecting inflation?
1: I think it had a as, a, as a matter of fact, I think it had a great deal of effect. Uh, I think what was most important there was a chapter in the monetary history that dealt with the Great Depression. Because
0: uh,
1: the difficulty of having people to understand uh, monetary theory is very simple, and that is that the central banks are good at press relations, <laughs> the central banks hire people and the central banks employ a large fraction of all economists so there is a bias to tell the case, the story in a way that is favorable to the central banks uh, but the Great Depression was such a major event and such a disaster that there was no way in which you could talk it away Although they tried to do so if you read the uh, uh, annual reports of the Federal Reserve Board or its testimony before Congress, you will find that as late as 1933, at the very depths of the Depression, it's talking about how much worse things would have been if the Fed hadn't behaved so well. Yeah, instead of 25%
0: unemployment, it might have been 30. might have been
1: 30 or 40.
0: (laughs) Very depressing,
1: actually. But because of that... But because of that, uh, because... uh, the evidence was so clear in that case, and there are lots of, lots of other people who have done it. We're not the only ones who did it. Uh, because the evidence was so clear, you had a decline in the quantity of money by a third from 29 to 33. And that coincided with a decline in the economy by a half or so. Uh, when you have 25% of the working force unemployed, you can't just talk it away.
0: But at the time...
1: At the and, time, and shortly afterward,
0: did. the main lesson that people drew from that was that capitalism is broken.
1: Absolutely, the lesson people drew was that it was a fault of business, that it was a market failure. But I think that reason they drew that lesson was because of the way in which the self-interest of the monetary authorities led them to promote it.
0: And you could toss in the self-interest of FDR in and painting himself as a savior, despite the.
1: Severe recession uh, in 1938. But but, but that would have been the same for them, even if they had recognized the cause. Only they would have concentrated more on on abolishing the Fed or on Mm -hmm. reformulating the Fed. But uh, the reason why the public and the intellectuals at large held to that perception was because that was what they were being told by the authorities.
0: And so it... it it justified a great deal of government intervention in the economy at the time, obviously. Oh, it
1: certainly did. It and,
0: and you're suggesting that the monetary history was the beginning of a revision toward a, a, a different perspective?
1: Well, I don't know. On the ideological side, uh, it's probable. There, there, were, there were other things that were... Hayek's Road to Serfdom, which was sure. published in 19... 19- Forty-five uh, made the ideological case, but I think them. Uh, and it, uh, but I think the monetary history. I don't know what role it played in the public at large. In, but in terms of the monetary authorities, in terms of money, there's no doubt
0: that it played a considerable it, role. And that chapter on the Great Depression must have alarmed them. <laughs> greatly about their exactly. potential for doing harm. Exactly. Uh, and at that time, in the '60s, there was a lot of debate about what the role of the central bank should be. And because inflation was relatively low, uh, there was much less attention pay- played to that role. Paid to that role, and other issues of full employment, et cetera. And,
1: and as of the '60s, the Keynesian view was dominant. For sure. So that there, the the central banks did not have any. Uh, Here and there, there were were things like the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, which was was arguing against the Federal Reserve policy and which was arguing that they should pay more attention to the quantity of money. But they were mavericks. They were considered as mavericks. Uh, But so far as the bulk of the population, the bulk of the profession, the bulk of the uh, people hired by the monetary authorities... They all were Keynesians, and
0: that, of course, is no longer true. But focusing on the central bank role, going back again to the '70s uh, when I was in in school, and shortly after your book came out, there was the focus was on the money supply, mm-hmm. the quantity of money, uh, counting it, controlling it through open market operations. Something changed. In the last 25 years, though, 30 years, that's not what Alan Greenspan or Ben Bernanke talk about. They talk about other things and they play with that short-term interest rate, not the so-called stock of money that you focused on so in in
1: And that's what they the talk about, but that's not what they do.
0: What do they do? They,
1: move the, they use the short-term interest rate as a way of controlling the quantity of money. If you look at the statistics. The, uh, the rate of change of the quantity of money from month to month, quarter to quarter, year to year, has never been so, so low as it has been over the last 20 years. I don't believe there's another 20-year period in the history of the country in which you can f- find so steady a rate of growth in the quantity of money. And it ca- that can't all be an accident. That's because they use... The the short-term interest rate. After all, how do they look at it in the simplest possible way? The Fed says the short-term interest rate should be 4.5%. How do they keep it there? By buying and selling securities on the open market. Now, you're Mr. Bernanke, you're Mr. Greenspan, you're watching there. And with the current uh, short-term interest rate, you find that the quantity of money is starting to creep up more rapidly than you really want. Well, then you will tend to be favorable to raising to a higher rate of interest. At that higher rate of interest, the demand for uh, money is, is less. And, and uh, so the supply of money under that phenomenon, instead of having to, to sell uh, government bonds to keep it there, they have to buy government bonds to keep it there, or vice versa. Maybe I'm getting it mixed up. But in any event, it, that's a, the, the short-term interest rate is a tool with which you can control the quantity of money.
0: But they don't talk about it that way.
1: No, they don't talk why about do
0: it Why do you that think way. that is? Do you have any I, idea? I don't know.
1: I've always been puzzled by why they insist on using the interest rate
0: and they rather talk than about, the quantity of money. And then they talk about how... You know, if the economy is growing too well, that must be. We have to be careful. That could be inflationary. We have to, you know, hold it back. Which uh, a logic I've never fully understood. But if you
1: if if you really carried out the logic of uh, concerning the quantity of money, you would deprive the Federal Reserve of anything to do. Suppose the Federal Reserve said it was going to increase the quantity of money by four percent a year, year after year, week after week, month after month. That would be a purely mechanical project you could you could uh, you could uh, program a computer to do that.
0: like an index mutual fund takes away the the fun of being a fund manager right so you're suggesting part of the reason is perhaps
1: that's part of the reason, but the main reason I think is different. It's that the association, the uh, central bank uh, regarded is associates with banks, it regards itself as sort of a mentor. Of the banking system and uh, uh, to the individual bank it is incre- doesn't believe it creates the quantity of money that doesn't make any sense to them what they deal with are interest rates and therefore it's natural and so many of the central bankers are themselves from from the banking industry they're bankers and so it's natural for them to think in terms of interest rates and moreover when they think in terms of interest rates by then They've got all kinds of interest rates, short-term interest rates, long-term interest rates, all kinds of excuses for uh, uh, exercising power or thinking they're exercising power.
0: Taking credit for exercising power. I've always
1: been in favor of abolishing the Federal Reserve and substituting a machine program that would keep the quantity of money going up at a steady rate.
0: And they have, going back to your earlier comment... Over the last 20 years or so, they've approximated that.
1: Come closer to approximating it, absolutely.
0: And I would argue, and I assume you would as well, that the relative stability of the U.S. economy over the last 20 years is a reflection of that steady growth in the money supply. I think
1: there's no doubt at all. The
0: non-erratic path.
1: That 20-year is a golden period. It's a period in which you had declining inflation, uh, but fairly steady rate, steady level, you had only three recessions, all of them brief, all of them mild. I don't believe you can find another 20-year period in American history. But it's interesting to note that so far as the international acceptance of monetary control is concerned, it was, it's, it was started by the Bank of New Zealand, not by the Federal Reserve Bank. It was uh, sometime in the 1980s uh, when New Zealand uh, essentially um, came close to privatizing its its central bank. Uh, and, uh, uh, it set up a situation in which the governor of the central bank of New Zealand had a contract with the government, in which he agreed to keep the uh, the uh, price level the inflation within a certain bound 0 to 3% or 0 to 2%. And if he did not do so he was he could be fired.
0: Not decapitated merely fired,
1: merely fired. But it still
0: concentrated his mind sufficiently. Oh
1: yeah. And uh, Don Brash who was appointed as the first governor of the Central Bank of New Zealand. He's a very he he's now the leader of the opposition in the in the New Zealand Parliament, but at the time he came from the he came from business, he was a businessman and he was he is an extraordinarily able and effective fellow and he t- he took this job on at the time when New Zealand had a very high inflation rate, and he succeeded in living up to his contract and that really set the pattern. It was a New Zealand experience, I'm sure that had more to do with other central banks around the world uh, adopting inflation targeting than the United States experience. Because it was so dramatically
0: effective in New Zealand?
1: A, it was the first time that anybody had explicitly adopted an inflation target. Hmm. So that that was something that everybody observed. And secondly, it was so dramatically effective.
0: Going back to this issue of the money supply and the lack of talk about it and concentration... Is it or is it not more difficult to measure the money supply today than it was 30, 30 40 years ago? There were no. The rule of credit, other things?
1: No? no, it's always been difficult to measure the money supply. <laughs> There's always been an argument whether, as you know, it started out with just coinage, gold and silver coins, 100% quality, and that is 100% weight. And by the story is told over and over again, and it's correct, that uh, the gold the dealers in gold discovered that they were holding deposits for people and nothing uh, they, they very rarely came to take it out, and so they could issue promises to pay that exceeded the amount of gold they had, and that was the beginning of the fractional reserve banking system, and that's the way in which the banking system operates today. And in fact, in which the country operates, yeah. we have paper money, but there's—it's—it uh, used to say on it, it doesn't anymore. It used to say on it, the U.S. government promises to pay so ten dollars. Uh, but they had, not, but when you went to get the ten dollars, you got ten one-dollar bills, <laughs> and if you broke down the one-dollar bills, you would get—you could get as far as having all copper. Lucky. Yeah. You know, <laughs>
0: So are you optimistic about the um, the role the central bank will continue to play in that uh, inflation and price level story? We, you say we've had a golden era of 20, 25 years of stable prices, steady growth with only minor, uh, by historical standards, minor recessions. Are you optimistic about the next 25 years, 20 years?
1: Uh, uh, I have great difficulty not being optimistic about it. All the evidence would seem to be optimistic. On the other hand, I can't hold back a doubt. Governments want to spend money. And sooner or later, governments are going to want to spend money without taxing it. And the only way to do that is to print money, is to create inflation. Inflation is a form of taxation. How long will governments be able to resist the temptation? And particularly, as people become adjusted to being in a world of stable inflation, there will be bigger suckers, as it were. It will be easier to get a lot of out of if everybody anticipated inflation, you couldn't get anywhere by inflating
0: but once you get you can once you get people lulled into the expectation of a lack of it there's the potential to exploit it uh Let me ask the question in a different way. Um, a lot of people uh, credit Alan Greenspan with the expansion and success. They give Paul Volcker some credit as well at the early part of this period that we're talking about. But uh, they make it sound like the key to success in monetary policy is you just got to get the right person in the job. And you know, when Ben Bernanke or whoever is following him comes in, there's this absurd uh, microscopic examination of his the aura and vapors around such a person. and You're suggesting that really has nothing well,
1: how to do with it. Is it. that how is it that New Zealand can do it? How is it that Australia can do it? How is it that Great Britain can do it? These are all countries which followed New Zealand, which New Zealand started it, but then uh, Australia and Great Britain also adopted inflation targeting.
0: Well, they just happened to find the right guy in each of those and places.
1: All, they've all been lucky, <laughs> absolutely. The great difficulty, I've always felt that the big defect politically of the Federal Reserve is precisely that so much depends on unelected representatives. It's, it's, it's a, the, the central bank is treated as if it were the Supreme Court. And and so there's no effect, that if, if, that's why during the Depression there was no effective control on the central bank. There were members of Congress who knew what to do, and who were trying to get the Fed to do it, but they could—they had no no way to do so.
0: There was no incentive directly. There was an indirect incentive, of course, which was humiliation and stigma, which oh, is of which is endured. Of course, um, they of course had no idea at the time of how bad that would turn out. Those decisions would look in in, in retrospect. But you're suggesting that if the, the disadvantage of the current system is a lack of uh, accountability. All right. But the alternative, the elected system, has the problem that you mentioned earlier of the temptation to exploit the ability to create money to increase revenue.
1: But so, that's why what you want to do is, if possible, to have a mechanical system. That was, If there was any virtue to the gold standard, it was that virtue. Maybe you could create the same thing now. My favorite proposal, really, is a little bit more sophisticated than the state straight, or less sophisticated, if you want to look at it, than a straight increase in the quantity of money. I would, if I had my choice, freeze the amount of high-powered money. Not increases. In,
0: high-powered not, money being... Uh, high-powered money being is
1: a tax. currency currency plus bank reserves.
0: Okay.
1: I would freeze that and hold it constant and have it as sort of a natural constant, like gravity or something.
0: Okay.
1: Now, you would, th- you would think that that's a bad idea, because there would be no provision for expansion. However, in addition, m- that, uh, the high-powered money is a small fraction of total money, and the ratio of total money to high-powered money has been going up over time. So, the, the, the economy would create more money, and that would be roughly, uh, on the average, you would have a pretty stable money growth and a pretty stable monetary system.
0: What do you think the odds are of that happening? Zero. Zero? Well, it's a small number, zero. Um, wish you were a little more optimistic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think it'll happen, unless there's another catastrophe like yeah. the Great Depression. And unless, under those circumstances, you might have it. But other than that, it's not going to happen. And I think the real danger of this breaking down is there's no danger of it's breaking down into a Great Depression. The real danger is that it'll break up into an inflation. When I see in the papers, in the Federal Reserve reports, that the inflation anticipation for 10, 20 years is of the order of 2% a year, I find it very hard to believe it. Sooner or later, so, uh, the government's going to get out of hand. But,
0: but this current run is is a lovely illustration of your, your ideal, which would be a non-discretionary mechanistic rule, which people on average find very unappealing. The average person finds very unappealing discretion always seems to be better than, than rules because we could always, as you've written, mimic the rule if that was what was called for, but the discretion gives us the opportunity to improve on the rule. And yet what you've argued, which is fascinating, is that with that discretion, which is not ideal in your world, yet with that discretion, they have followed the rule yes. so far. They've given the impression to the world that they are wise and, and careful engineers at the helm of the monetary uh, system. And yet they have acted as robots. That's right. What a wonderful example of uh, uh, a lack of damage done by that that discretion so far. But I understand your pessimism. That's the end of part one of my conversation with Milton Friedman. Please visit econtalk.org to discuss this podcast with other listeners, find links related to this podcast, and find other episodes of EconTalk. This is your host, Russ Roberts, inviting you to join us for the next episode of Econ Talk when Milton Friedman and I discuss the ideas in his landmark book, Capitalism and Freedom. Thanks for listening.